once, when I was a child, my father took me to the circus. My initial excitement quickly dissipated upon witnessing the shoddiness of the purported extravaganzas and the performer's lack of talent and professionalism. The trapeze artists were morbidly obese, their sequin tights ripping at the seams, their tiny capes shrunk from frequent dry cleaning, and they would often miscalculate an aerial maneuver and fall onto the large polyethylene safety net, removing both suspense and motivation for competence. The menagerie housed mostly empty cages with cardboard signs indicating the animals were sick and recuperating away from the public eye. The few elephants and wild cats that remained stared at me with mournful eyes, begging me to euthanize them. The one clown I saw was smoking a cigarette behind a trailer, coughing violently, a perpetual smile painted on his haggard face. On our way out, my father spotted a sign for a gypsy fortune teller, and he gave me some money and told me to entertain myself while he used the restroom. Rubbing the quarters nervously between my fingers, I walked up to the circus clairvoyant, who looked more like a hairdresser than a gypsy. She had a beehive hairdo and long, fake plastic nails, her expression of permanent disinterest seemingly painted on like the clowns. She waved her hands around a cheap plastic magic eight ball and half-heartedly muttered some magical words, most of which were drink specials at the local bar. 250 tequila sunrise, she said. 175 domestic draws. She instructed me to provide the eight ball with a question, so I asked it if I was going to be an astronaut when I grew up. She gave the plastic toy a few uninspired shakes and handed it to me. It says, please try again, I reported. That will be another $1.25, she said. I was about to leave when a plume of smoke emanated from the magic eight ball, dissipating into tiny ringlets absorbed by the booth's heavy cloth curtains. As we both stared at this unexpected development, the ball burst into flames, driving the counterfeit gypsy screaming from her kiosk. Rather than frightening me, the fire beckoned with its dancing white light, and I impulsively asked the oracle another question. When am I going to die, I said. As the cloudy blue ink formed a response, the flames spread to the curtains, and the plastic slowly melted in my hands. As the message was being delivered, my father yanked me from the booth and carried me to a nearby picnic table. Are you okay, he said. I'm fine, I answered. We're getting out of here, he grumbled. This place is a death trap. You could have been killed. No, that's impossible, I said. And why's that, he asked. Because, I replied, I now know the exact time and date of my death.
knowing the precise moment of my death had a profound effect on my childhood. People talk about the recklessness of youth, of how teenagers think they're invincible, but in my case, it was true, and this contributed to my increasingly irrational and dangerous behavior. I would disappear for weeks at a time, hitchhiking from city to city, spending the night in back alleys and entryways of tenement homes. I would mainline black tar heroin in extravagant doses, resulting in prolonged periods of hallucinations and unconsciousness, but never death. I would play tag with Brahmin bulls, wrestle alligators along the Florida turnpike, fly kites in lightning storms, and free dive off suspension bridges. When I returned home from my escapades, beaten, battered, scarred, and strung out, my parents would throw their arms around me, sobbing, saying they'd given me up for dead. How many times do I have to tell you, I said. I've got another ten years left in me. My reckless existence precluded any chance of academic success in high school, so after barely graduating, I worked a series of low-paying jobs at various fast-food restaurants, convenience stores, and coffee shops. The years went by, and I lapsed into a deep depression, convinced I was irresponsibly wasting my secret gift by working these menial jobs. On my 21st birthday, when I had less than seven years left, I made a conscious decision to make something of myself, to choose a goal and spend the rest of my short life pursuing it. Instead of mopping floors and working a cash register, I wanted to take advantage of my abilities, working in a dangerous, vitally important field where violent deaths are part of the job description. And so, I decided to become a hired assassin. My initial forays into the business were unsuccessful. Unsure of how to develop a regular clientele, I briefly considered posting an advertisement on the bulletin board in my church, but I thought asking parishioners if they'd like their enemies killed would be inappropriate in a place of worship, especially since it was still Lent. I kept meaning to bring the subject up with my parents at the dinner table, but every time a window of opportunity emerged, I couldn't bring myself to ask if they really wanted the PTA president dead, if they really wanted that sick youth hockey coach eliminated. From watching Hollywood films, I got a pretty good sense of the skills necessary for the position, and I would practice my marksmanship, physical stealth, and espionage techniques daily. But what the movies never mentioned is how the assassins got into the business in the first place. I looked in the classified ads in the newspaper, searched through monster.com, attended various career fairs and employment expos, even sat down with my high school guidance counselor, but nothing helped. My guidance counselor suggested I apply for junior college, but I told him my time was precious and shouldn't be wasted on term papers and pep rallies. I asked him if any alumni from my high school had become hired killers, and he became very uncomfortable and handed me some brochures about the Air Force Reserves. Despite the months of fruitless searching, my regular training paid off and I developed into an expert assassin. 
I never killed anyone, but for practice, I would choose a high-profile member of the community, such as a local TV weatherman or district attorney, and break into his home while he slept, painting him with my laser-sighted rifle. I would then leave a mint on his pillow and slip out the house, completely undetected. Finally, a moment of inspiration came while watching the Mexican film Amores Perros. One of the film's three-story arcs follows an ex-guerrilla who becomes a hired assassin after finishing his prison term. It occurred to me that prison would be an excellent place for networking with members of the Killing for Hire community. Not only could I meet fellow assassins who could provide me with tricks of the trade and contact information, but I might also meet powerful crime bosses who would employ me for hits after my release. The way I looked at it, prison would be like an unpaid internship, an unglamorous but necessary stepping stone on the path towards greatness. To prepare for incarceration, I read a number of prison novels to get a better idea of what to expect from my jail experience. The first book I read was Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which didn't seem to apply to my situation. The main thing I learned from the Stephen King novella Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption was that Rita Hayworth and Linda Ronstadt posters had uses beyond self-gratification. After watching the HBO series Oz, I became worried about the prevalence of prison rape, so I began an intensive physical training program, adding 60 pounds of muscle onto my previously wiry frame, and visited several tattoo parlors, choosing the most fearsome-looking designs. Despite these precautions, I thought it would be beneficial to attend a rape-aggression defense class, as roughly one in five men is forced to perform a sexual act in prison, and one in ten is raped. I was told that only women were allowed to enroll, so I disguised myself with a cheap wig and a prom dress with shoulder pads. Though everyone else was dressed in workout clothes, no one objected to my presence, and I was taught such valuable skills as the seize and sever method and the advanced keychain technique. As I worked on sculpting my body, I noticed that women were increasingly attracted to me. Whereas I had always struggled to get dates in high school, I was now an object of prurient desire. Office receptionists would stutter and bite their lips as I approached the desk. Cocktail waitresses would undress me with lustful stares and walk into busboys, their trays of cosmopolitans and strawberry daiquiris crashing onto the floor. Ex-girlfriends who found me simple and shallow now hung on my every word complimenting me on my intelligence and sophistication. And despite this newfound attention, I never slept with these women. In fact, I ignored them completely. The truth was, I was ashamed of being a man. Ever since the rape-aggression defense class, I was overwhelmed by guilt over the savagery of my gender and paranoia of losing control over my sexual urges. If I was having lunch with a female friend and I became the slightest bit aroused, I would immediately dump an entire glass of blood orange mimosa down my pants and excuse myself, leaving the restaurant and never coming back. Eventually, I swore off female companionship altogether, reasoning that since there were no women in prison, 
I may as well get used to it. The next step was to find the perfect crime. Too heinous an offense would prevent me from pursuing my career before my death, one too trivial would merely result in a fine or community service, completely defeating the purpose of my transgressions. After all, you don't meet a hired assassin while raking leaves for the elderly. After some preliminary research, I discovered a great deal of discrepancy in the sentencing for certain crimes. The average sentence for rape was 10 years, but some rapists actually served less than three. On the other hand, an Oregon man who set fire to three SUVs as a political statement against environmental destruction received 23 years. I made a mental note to avoid making any political statements with my crime. Because truth and sentencing laws hadn't been passed in my state, convicted criminals rarely served their full sentence, so I decided some form of armed robbery would be my best bet. I initially planned on robbing a wealthy entrepreneur and donating the proceeds to a homeless shelter or AIDS hospice, but worried that it would be misconstrued as social idealism, I nixed the idea. Mixing crime with politics was too dangerous, I told myself. After purchasing a Remington pump-action rifle from Walmart, I began scoping out my neighborhood for potential robbery victims. As most of the businesses were mom-and-pop stores, once vital to the community but now struggling to compete with the chain store behemoths, I decided to rob Walmart. I entered through the automatic doors, brandishing my rifle, and received a hearty welcome from a septuagenarian greeter in a wheelchair. The return section is located in the back, she cheerfully squawked. I fired a warning shot into the head of a disturbingly realistic mannequin and announced that a robbery was in progress. One by one, I hit each cash register, stuffing the money into plastic bags imprinted with the Walmart smiley face. As I reached the penultimate aisle, I became anxious about the lack of police sirens approaching from the distance. Didn't anyone set off the silent alarm? I asked the teenage girl, providing me with plastic bags. It's not worth it, she said. Barely any of us can afford the healthcare benefits, so we can't risk getting shot. The 50-year-old Hispanic woman in the adjacent checkout lane agreed. It's not like we really care if Walmart gets robbed, she said. They can cover it. I walked out of Walmart with $2,000, and one of the cashiers even gave me a receipt. The thrill of the money was short-lived, however, since my bid for imprisonment had utterly failed. I robbed several other major retailers, but the results were the same. Multinational corporations just didn't seem to inspire much loyalty from their minimum wage employees. The stress of daily burglaries was taking its toll on me, so I bought several ounces of pot to help me relax. As I walked out of my dealer's house, an army of squad cars encircled me, and a burly cop ordered me to put my hands behind my head. Due to the large amount of marijuana on my person, I was charged with intent to sell, a felony. Finally, things were going my way.
I was sentenced to 30 days at a minimum security prison, which was far from ideal. Instead of the cocaine kingpins, the mafia dons, and hired killers I hoped to befriend, the prisoners were mostly white-collar criminals and celebrities with drug problems. The prison production of A Streetcar Named Desire featured three Emmy winners in the cast, and the actor playing Stanley had also won several Tonys. My cellmate was a celebrity chef from Louisiana whose financial clout brought a private catering service to the prison. As a result, our daily meals featured such delicacies as chicken liver pate and rhubarb with acacia honey and a rosemary jam. For good behavior, we were allowed seconds. Hoping for a transfer to a maximum security prison, I held a guard hostage with a shish kebab skewer, but it was regarded merely as a cry for help by the administration, and I was enrolled in group therapy. On Mondays, we did finger painting to express our anger constructively, and on Wednesdays, we role-played with hand puppets, brainstorming alternative methods to deal with stress. A former child actor with a coke problem suggested yachting, and a professional football star convicted of wife battery recommended a vacation in Ibiza, the woolen socks on their hands mouthing the words with goofy, permanent marker grins. When it was my turn, I said the finger painting seemed to be doing the trick. I scheduled an appointment with the warden and expressed my desire to be housed in a higher security institution. He said I would have to apply for a transfer, an arduous process involving countless application forms, admissions and processing fees, three letters of recommendation, and a personal essay. The essay had to be written on a topic selected from a pool of choices predetermined by the prison. Some options were, should contents on the internet be regulated, and a character in Hamlet says, neither a borrower nor a lender be. Is this good advice? It seemed to me there was a sizable discrepancy in the difficulty of the topics. One of the questions was, is it better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? Directly below it was, explain why you do or do not like picnics. After scanning the 15-page list, I found a topic that interested me. The question was, if your doctor told you that you had only a few months to live, how would you alter your way of life? I began my introduction with a brief synopsis of how I discovered the exact time and date of my death, and how it shaped my personality and worldview. By that time, I had roughly five years left, not a few months, but through extrapolation, I theorized that rescheduling my death sentence would only intensify my resolve to become an internationally known hired assassin. Jacques Cousteau said, when one man, for whatever reason, has the opportunity to lead an extraordinary life, he has no right to keep it to himself. I wasn't about to hide my gift beneath a bushel basket. It was something that deserved to be shared with the world. After completing my essay and filling out the necessary forms, I asked my cellmate, the prison chaplain, and the lead actor from A Streetcar Named Desire to write me a letter of recommendation on official letterhead. I wasn't allowed to read them, but I'm sure they were thoughtfully worded and gently persuasive. 
I had read several interviews with the actor in Entertainment Weekly, and he seemed to be particularly articulate. After months of waiting for a reply, I received a letter from the warden and hastily tore it open. Tears streaming down my face, I waved the envelope proudly through the bars, yelling for the whole cell block to hear. I did it, I cried. I got accepted to Rikers Island. My first day of maximum security prison was an excruciating exercise in social rejection. Before marching to the mess hall for breakfast, I became so nervous I vomited all over my orange uniform. Every table in the cafeteria was inhabited by a different gang. The Latinos, the Crips, the Bloods, the white supremacists. I didn't feel like I belonged with any of them, so I sat by myself and poked at my meatloaf with my plastic silverware. I whiled away the hours reading in the prison library and folding washed uniforms in the laundry room. The hardened criminals I longed to meet spent their time lifting weights in the recreational yard, but I was too shy to ask them to spot me, so I just half-heartedly tugged at a curl machine until my exercise time was over. After months of self-imposed isolation, a flyer on the prison bulletin board provided me with the perfect opportunity for making new friends. The prison was launching a fast-pitch softball league, and there were still a few open spots. My older sister had been an All-American softball player at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and I was familiar with the difficult mechanics of the underhanded softball pitch from religiously attending her games. One of the teams, the Shanks, needed a pitcher so I scrawled my name on the loose-leaf sign-up sheet taped on the cafeteria wall. My pitching prowess quickly escorted me to prison-wide acclaim, capturing the imagination of the convicts and guards who placed bets with cash, cigarettes, and European porn magazines. In one game, I recorded 17 strikeouts, an unheard-of number in prison league softball, earning me the nickname Special K. I led the Shanks to the semifinals in the urine tournament, and though we lost in extra innings to the Capital Punishers, I was a consensus pick for the all-prison team. Thanks to my softball performance, I grabbed the attention of a prominent cocaine kingpin whose son was our utility manager. Hearing of my interest in the hired assassin business, the crime boss assured me he'd get me work when I left the prison. I came up for parole a few weeks later, and since the prison officials deciding my fate had made a small fortune in tobacco and Dutch smut from betting on me, my request for parole was immediately accepted. My boss started me out in the minor leagues, as he called them, performing hits on small-time dope dealers and gun runners who owed him money. After proving my worth, I was called up to AAA, knocking off members of rival cartels. My big break came with my perfectly executed killing of a Mafia Don, infiltrating his daughter's birthday party dressed in a moose costume and silently poisoning his slice of German chocolate cake with rat poison. After that, I was the flavor of the month in the hired killer community, 
equally sought after by both the criminal underworld and the CIA. But whether I was contracted by a drug lord to erase the competition, or by the US government to assassinate a Marxist revolutionary, I always refrained from investing myself emotionally in the killings, keeping a safe psychological distance between me and my work. I had been raised to respect and trust authority, so I never questioned the motives behind my murderous assignments. It wasn't my place to decide who lived or died, that was up to the higher-ups. My job was simply to carry out their wishes, a lowly grunt in the intricate latticework of politics and commerce. After establishing my international reputation, I received my biggest job yet, a CIA hit on the elected leader of a South American country. The magnitude of the assignment was reason enough for excitement, but there was something else that raised the stakes that assured its place as the defining moment of my life. The assassination was scheduled for August 7th, the exact day I was prophesized to die. The night before the assassination, I took a stroll in the local graveyard, El Cementerio San Pedro, participated in a torchlit tour of the premises. Most of the tombs were small slots in the wall, and corpses were stuffed in like folded magazines in a post office box. The tombs were temporary, rented for four years, and we passed the occasional weeping family removing their loved one, depositing the remains in a sack for cremation. The only permanent tombs belonged to the wealthy elite and young men who died for their drug lord. The inscription, Sacrificado, etched their plaque. Glory through sacrifice, permanence through martyrdom, the ultimate reward for brand loyalty. set up my sniper's nest in the abandoned attic of a local bookstore called Libros y Libros. From my secluded perch, I had front row seats to the all-day revelry in the city plaza below. The Presidente's scheduled visit coincided with an annual flower festival, and swarms of campesinos in bright traditional garb proudly displayed their elaborate floral arrangements in vibrant, sweet-smelling parades. The music of local guitar and mandolin players reverberated off the whitewashed buildings and sneaked in through my partially open window, and I was treated to a steering, strummed, and plucked overture before my somber curtain call. The president's open convertible appeared in the distance, snaking past throngs of exuberant festival goers and admirers, and as he waved to the crowds, they tossed bouquets of fragrant chrysanthemums into the car overflowing with rose petals and bleeding swain carnations. His wife, a dignified Latina beauty, blew kisses to the starstruck children perched on their parents' shoulders. As the car slowly approached, I attached the silencer to my AR-10 target rifle and pressed my eye to the telescopic sight. Through the magnified lens, the Presidente and his wife looked particularly glamorous, 
and I would have preferred sharing a nice cup of coffee instead of shooting them. But someone in the US government, far smarter than me, had decided they posed a national security threat, and I was in no position to argue. I'd never call myself a patriot, but I do consider myself a team player, and whether I'm ordered to hit a sacrifice fly for my fast-pitched softball team or take out a South American premier, I will perform that duty with the best of my abilities. I glanced at the marble clock tower prominently displayed on the opposite side of the street and saw that I had a minute before 12 o'clock noon, the exact time of my death. Calmly acquiring my target with my telescopic sight, I took a deep breath and prepared to pull the trigger. They say that right before you die, your whole life flashes before your eyes, but I don't see how that's possible. For the man who steps off the curb only to get plastered by an oncoming bus, it seems to me consciousness is flicked off like a light switch, an instantaneous banishment to the void. In my case, though, I was granted the benefit of a countdown. New Year's Eve in Times Square, hosted by Dr. Kevorkian instead of Dick Clark. I looked away from my target and checked the clock. I had 30 seconds. It's funny what pops into your mind while you wait your imminent death. There are the standard anxieties over the existence of an afterlife, winged demons prodding you with pitchforks in a pool of pus and blood, as well as a myriad of regrets and lamentations as you wonder, did I accomplish anything with my life? Was there any point to all of this? At the same time, I found myself trying to remember the name of the bass player for Duran Duran and whether or not I paid my cable bill that month. In the corner of my eye, the clock tower registered 15 seconds before noon, and I focused my attention on the Presidente, neatly framed in the center of my crosshairs. My finger on the trigger, preparing to squeeze my way into history, I felt the cold kiss of steel against the back of my neck, and heard the unmistakable sound of a revolver's safety being clicked off. Damn, I thought. That clock tower must be running slow. 